Today's reading is meant to provoke. It's from the American Center for Law and Justice. Over the last two decades, there has emerged a growing realization among all sectors of society that we have failed to instill in our children either the ability or the desire to distinguish between right and wrong. Our youth are, by their own account, morally destitute. The absence of virtue and moral restraint is becoming more and more evident as our culture embraces moral relativism and parents attempt to raise children under the misguided belief that our society possesses some independent moral compass. Many legislators and educators realize that efforts to inculcate virtue apart from a common standard or or at the very least some consensus as to what conduct and character traits are desirable, is an exercise in futility. There is a growing desire to, to display the Ten Commandments in all public venues because they traditionally have represented a moral floor for acceptable behavior and served as an antecedent to obedience to law. The absence of their influence in today's culture is increasingly noted by eminent sources, including educators, legislators, jurists, and parents, making the case for the return of character education in our schools. Don't hit me. Today I am giving the penultimate sermon on our summer series on the UU Loose Leaf Bible. My topic is precepts, commandments, and rules for living. I picked this topic because of something that I read nearly 40 years ago and have from time to time thought about and tried to square with my own set of rules for living. Events of the past few years have led me to a better understanding of this one rule or perhaps as I'm going to argue, a non-rule. Also today I'm treading on some unexplored territory and I may may need you to be patient with me. My title is 10, 613, 12, 0. A rather strange title for a sermon. Here's 10. Before I talk about my reading of 40 years ago, you didn't really think I was going to give that to you to start. Okay. I want to talk about a couple other sets of rules. I've always been intrigued by one of the most well-known rules for living, the Ten Commandments. My interest comes from their tone and how they interact with uh, Western civil and criminal law. Here's the short list. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your mother and father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. I do not pretend to have the knowledge to talk extensively on the commandments. I would like to make a few personal observations, though. One is the nature of the second commandment against making idols. The language which follows the actual commandment is this. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. I do not, never have pictured my God as being as petty as to be jealous or to be so mean as to punish not only the violator of the commandment, but also the children in three more generations of the violator. Another observation about the first and second commandments. I was raised a Catholic, and I could never understand how Catholics not only had images and statues of Jesus, but also had statues of Mary and the saints, and how they worshipped those statues. How do Catholics square with the commandment against making idols and against worshipping other gods? No less than the highly respected authority, Wikipedia, informs us that in the 8th century there were heated debates between the iconoclasts, those who wanted to ban icons, and the iconoduels, those who supported the veneration of icons. In 787 CE, the Second Council of Nicaea determined that the veneration of icons was not a violation of the Second Commandment on the theory that whoever venerates an image venerates the person portrayed in it. So a bunch of guys get together. I could just see this like a back room type thing. All right, Put a little spin on the veneration of icons and voila, no violation of the commandments. If the American Center for Law and Justice needs an example of moral relativism, that's it. Only three of the Ten Commandments have made it into our civil and criminal laws. The prohibitions on stealing, murder, and bearing false witness or perjury. The last commandment on coveting is not merely ignored. To the contrary, it's become in favor. Just watch TV shows like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and see how coveting has become the norm. If there's one covenant or one commandment that I would love to see codified in our civil and criminal laws, it's number five, honor your mother and your father. Just imagine what we could do with our teenagers when they get mouthy. (laughs) We could just put bars on all our middle schools and leave the kids there until they figure out that their parents are not idiots. (laughs) And I'm going to go off script for just a second because when my son was maybe eight or nine, ten He did something. I don't know what he did. But all I remember is that I was doing the dad lecture. All right, I'm telling him this and this. And he's looking up at me, his face blank. And in the middle of it, I stopped suddenly. And I said, Michael, you think I'm the biggest idiot on the planet, don't you? (laughs) And with the subtlest of head nods, he just went. (laughs) I quit the lecture. We went to our separate corners. <clears throat> the other interest I have in the Ten Commandments is why some want to post them in public places like courthouses and schools, especially since only three of them have any relevance to modern civil and criminal laws. I read you one justification in this morning's reading. The argument is that we must teach our youths the value set forth in the Ten Commandments because they are a moral floor, floor and that trying to teach moral relativism is futile. Why posting them publicly, though, is, uh, is needed is still eludes me. We can teach values. In fact, we teach many values without posting them in every public place. I thought I would consult on this question with a very dear fundamentalist friend of mine 
I've known Dave Smith, affectionately known and unsurprisingly called Smitty, for over 25 years. He's a member of the Noontime Runners Club, a group of professional guys that ran from the Auburn YMCA every day. Smitty was our token fundamentalist and our most politically conservative member. We had a brief email exchange. Here it is. Me, I wanted to talk to you about religion, a religion politics question. I'm doing a lay sermon about commandments and rules for living. Of course, I want to discuss the Ten Commandments, but one thing that came to mind is why certain fundamentalist groups want to see the Ten Commandments posted in schools and in courthouses. What do you think? You're my go-to guy on this. Smitty, fundamentalist believers like myself believe that the God of the Bible is the only true God. So it follows from the fact that we would want his laws displayed. Didn't a lot of English law derive from the Ten Commandments and the laws of the first five books of the Old Testament? Me, that's where it gets confusing for me. Only three have made it into our civil and criminal laws, murder, stealing, and bearing false witness. The rest have not. Is the goal to have us all governed by, uh, by all ten? Smitty, that may be the goal of unsaved so-called Christians, but the Ten Commandments can be summed up in what Jesus said. Love God with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. That can only happen when someone is born again. Read the third chapter of the Gospel of John over carefully. So I did. And it tells us that no one can, be say, uh, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So for Smitty, that was the basic fundamental rule that he was following. You can only be saved if you're born again. 613. I want to move on to another more extensive set of rules for living. In Judaism, there are 613 laws or mitzvot. Judaism is not just a set of beliefs about God, men, and the universe. Judaism is a comprehensive way of life filled with rules and practices that affect every aspect of life. What you do when you wake up, what you do when you wake up in the morning, what you can and cannot eat, what you can and cannot wear, how to groom yourself, how to conduct business, who you can marry, how to observe the holidays and Shabbat, and perhaps most important, how to treat God other people, and animals. This set of rules and practices is known as halakha. The rules are really a a very detailed and comprehensive way of living. Many are are wonderful. Love Love and help your neighbor. Help the poor. Do not wrong another in speech. Don't bear a grudge. Others are highly technical, such as the rules for not accidentally violating the Sabbath. For instance, you do not turn electrical appliances or lights on and off during the Sabbath. You do not tear anything, including toilet paper. It seems to me that it's very hard to live by so many rules that you are just inviting failure. Once again, though, I had someone to consult with, my daughter Amy. She was raised a UU, but married a young man from Israel. He was a secular Jew, But over the past years, they have become more and more devout and are now heredity or ultra-Orthodox. My question for her was, why follow the mitzvot? What do you get from it? Is it hard? She sent me a very long written response. I can't read all of it. I'm going to read you just portions. The 613 mitzvot are divided into two categories, 
those that we understand, for instance, you shall not murder and you shall not steal, and those that are not understandable, like eating pork. I remember when I went to a Shabbat seminar in Israel, my husband and I with our first baby. She has six now, so this is a while ago. My husband was very enthusiastic about returning to his Jewish roots and was ready to take on any mitzvah that he learned about. And believe me, there are a lot. Okay, 613 isn't really realistic for these days because many of them pertain only to the Holy Temple, many are only for the Kohens, some for men, some for women. I, on the other hand, was very suspicious. Every new law seemed like, and she put they in quotes, wanted to take something away from me. I mean, here I was, a feminist, a yoga teacher, a dancer, and generally a very rebellious young lady, spending a whole Shabbat with those primitive religious Jews that just wanted to repress me and take away all my freedom. And my husband wants to join them? It was a very scary situation. But just like I would never think of blindly following any kind of behavior, I wouldn't blindly condemn them either. I was brought up in a very liberal household, and we were educated to respect everyone. Anyone that knows my dad will immediately understand about the, free, about the tree that this apple grew on. So I asked about everything and didn't accept anything. Back to Shabbat. At that point, I didn't understand Hebrew enough to attend the lectures. So I sat in the dining room with the wives and children of the lecturers. I sat and watched. My Hebrew was good enough to make small chat with the kids. I was fascinated by what I saw. I don't think I can put my finger on it, but I was fascinated by the children who were so sweet and simple and happy. I looked at my tiny three-month-old baby and said to myself, I want kids like that. That Shabbat was a turning point for me and that it piqued my curiosity. I was still very suspicious, but my questions became a little less ambivalent. I was a little less scared of that skull cap my husband started wearing and a little more accepting of all sorts of weird things that he started doing. I began to see the amazing wisdom of Judaism. The commandments I liked, I would try, and what seemed illogical or weird or inconvenient, no thanks. That's the understanding I eventually came to. If I want children like that, a relationship with my husband like that, fulfillment in my life like that, a deep personal relationship with the creator of the world like that, I had to follow the recipe as it was written 3,725 years ago when God gave the Torah to the newly created Jewish nation on Mount Sinai. The world has changed a lot since then, but God has not. So what ended up happening is I found the beauty and wisdom in the mitzvot. Those I understood and those that I didn't. Slowly I started taking on those practices that were less comfortable and less enjoyable. It came down to this. I believe that God created the world as, as, it, as written in the Torah. I believe the Torah was given by God to the Jewish nation. God created the world. I can barely create lunch on a busy day. I would really be out of my mind not to do what he says. With that, I came to a whole new understanding of my daughter and how she arrived at where she is. I also saw a strong commonality between my fundamentalist friend Smitty and Amy. They both have a strong belief in their God, Jesus' Savior or God of the Torah. 
and their life, and they govern their lives accordingly. Twelve. Here's a list of a dozen rules that are posted in a middle school classroom. Help each other. Clean up after yourself. Treat others kindly. Do the right thing. Share everything. Tell the truth. Never give up. Do your best. Always. Ask a lot of questions. Say please and thank you. Work hard. Play fair. Simple and easy to follow. And as far as I know, no one has objected to those being posted. I mentioned at the start of my talk that I selected this topic because of something I read nearly 40 years ago and have pondered from time to time. Back in the 70s, I read a number of books by Richard Bach. If you are a certain age and a seeker, you probably read his most famous book, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. He also wrote Illusions, The Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah, a story about a modern-day messiah who decides to quit. The Messiah is named Donald Shimoda, and his traveling companion is Richard. One chapter in the illusion starts out with this single rule. We are all free to do whatever we want. Although I like this idea, for many years I wanted to finish the quote with a qualifier, such as, as long as we don't hurt anyone else, or perhaps, as long as we accept the consequences of our acts. The focus was always on what we can do to others, and to me it was not quite satisfying as a rule to live by. Here's the brief excerpt from the book. We are all free to do whatever we want to do, Shimoda said that night. Isn't that a simple and clean, isn't that simple, clean and clear? Isn't it a great way to run a universe? Almost, you forgot a pretty important part, Richard said. Oh, we are all free to do what, what we want to do as long as we don't hurt someone else, Richard chided. I know you meant that, but you ought to say what you mean. So the chapter continues with Shimoda, the, the Messiah, creating a vampire and who wants to suck Richard's blood, explaining that if he doesn't get some blood, he will die. Richard, of course, is ready to fight for his life, even if it means hurting the vampire. The vampire scene is a metaphor for anyone or any group who insists that we live by their way or by their rules, or they will be hurt. Yet for all the explanation, I still had difficulty with the idea that we are free to do whatever we want. I kept adding the phrase, as long as we don't hurt somebody. All of which begs the question, if we do need rules, whose do we follow? The Ten Commandments? The 613 mitzvot? The 12 rules posted in school, the Koran, our seven principles, Emily Posts. And what happens when we find out that the commandments, the ones handed down by God, are subject to human interpretation? How do those who complain about moral relativism reconcile that with the fact that men interpret, reinterpret the big rules? And here's a personal rule I love. Before you criticize anyone, Walk a mile in their shoes. This way, when you do criticize them, you will have their shoes and be a mile away. (laughs) 
Now I want to take a right turn, as I generally do with my talks. I want to tell you a little bit about my late wife, Patty, whom none of you knew, because she showed me in her life and in her death the answer to my problem. She was an Irish woman, red hair, pug nose, and had the personality to match. She was not shy about telling me what I should do or think. In fact, until we got married, I did not realize how little I actually knew. <laughs> Patty was one of those people that when you talk with her, she felt you, were, you felt she was your best friend. She was always kind and gracious and generous. In January of 2007, she was diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic breast cancer. By the time she was diagnosed, the cancer was in her bones. If you ever want some cold water thrown on your life, try sitting with an oncologist you just met. And listen to her tell you that you have stage 4 cancer and it will kill you sooner rather than later. Our lives were upended, of course. We were living in Belize at the time, but soon decided to move back to the States. The oncologist was in Maine. There's a kind of a long story there. So we decided to move there for the time being. Strangely, the initial treatments were not very debilitating. She was put on Femera, which is a hormone therapy, and took a pill daily. There were frequent scans and tests, but life went on in an eerily normal way. The oncologist warned us that the femera would stop working after a while and more aggressive treatment would be necessary, including chemo. That day finally came in the middle of 2010 and Patty started on a course of chemotherapy. By then we had moved to Ashburn. The chemo was devastating and I thought the treatment would kill her. There was nausea, vomiting, loss of hair, neuropathy in her hands and feet, sleeping 16 to 18 hours a day just from pure exhaustion. Then there came a time when the chemotherapy stopped working and we learned that the cancer had spread to her liver. Our oncologist offered options, but one by one, Patty turned them down because she did not want to suffer the debilitating side effects. I did not know it at that moment, but she had 43 days to live. We called in hospice. I'm telling you this not for sympathy, but to tell you something about Patty and the last thing she taught me. During the four and a half years she lived with her cancer, she became my hero. We had our occasional pity parties, as we like to call them. We cried, we talked, and we went on. But during that whole time, she faced her cancer in her limited time here with dignity, grace, and humor. I look back on pictures of her in those last days, smiling and laughing with her grandchildren. She never stopped being a loyal friend and her concern for others never flagged. At one point, a couple of weeks before she died, she said to me, and I'm quoting, if this is dying, it's not so bad. At 11.30 a.m. on July 13, 2011, Patty died. I had seen several other people die, my first wife, my mother, my father, and a colleague. They all wore death masks, the slack mouth and jaw, teeth revealed. In those two days before Patty died, her spirit had left and she wore that mask. I worried that that was what I would always remember in those last moments with her. 
But after she breathed her last breath, something remarkable happened. I'm going to read what I wrote in the journal I kept. Sometime during the night of July 10th, Patty's spirit left. She did not communicate in any way. Except for her rhythmic breathing, there was no motion. She did not react to pain. She showed no signs of anxiety. Her mouth was slack and partly open, revealing her teeth. Her eyes were slightly open, which was a bit disconcerting. The state continued for the next two and a half days. Monday afternoon, Dr. Sullivan visited and told me it, it was the last time he'd been seeing Patty, a sure sign that the end was near. I stopped giving her all her meds. Wednesday morning, about 11.30, she died. I was not in the room, but came in within moments of her death. She was warm. My world? <sighs> Split in two. I was racked with grief, grief as deep and wide as the Grand Canyon. I buried my face in Patty's body and sobbed uncontrollably. I kissed her, stroked her hair, caressed her face, and closed her eyes. Patty's son, Adam, was with me. After a time, I looked at her face once more. Adam and I looked at each other in disbelief. Her mouth was no longer slack. The dreaded wrinkles on her forehead were gone. To our astonishment, her lips had curled into a smile. She was free and she was happy. So what does all of this have to do with rules for living and Richard Bach's rule in particular? That we are all free to do whatever we want to do. Here is what Patty taught me. We are free to do what we want to do. But the correct prepositional phrase which ends the sentence is not to each other, but with our own lives. We are all free to do whatever we want to do with our lives. What is important is not what one particular set of rules tells us to do, but how we